All right, folks. Well, it's getting to that uh, point here now. We have four days to get this lockout worked out, or we are missing regular season baseball. Ominous tones here as we get ready to open up number 57 of Behind the Yellow Line. Full crew here tonight. Jeremy's here. Randall is here. This is number 57 for us. So we're going to talk number 57 for the Cubs, but let's get straight into it. We got some problems here. We have four days. We are recording this on Thursday night, February 24th. If this thing is not resolved by Monday, we are not getting Major League Baseball March 31st. This is not looking good. Um, I Yeah, that, I mean, I thought when we asked before last time, uh, I think you asked, when do we think it gets resolved? My, I picked March 3rd, which was a date after February 28th. Like the, the February 20th deadline, I understand being a deadline, but it's also like an owner-imposed deadline that, you know, I just, I, I, I mean, I don't know. Are we going to get actual baseball on March 31st? Maybe not. But then the question is, you know, how many games do we get? Like I could see the players are going to want to play as many games as possible. And you would think the owners would want to, so I could see, you know, double headers, but yeah, it's right now. I don't know if we can be optimistic or not, but it's tough. We'll, I, like I said, deadlines kind of set things in motion, but we'll see um, if they're able to actually move forward and, and what, because everything's been so incremental. It hasn't nothing there. Nobody's made a major change. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure what the owners want at this point, And I, I'm not entirely sure that baseball is the answer to that. Uh, I'm, I'm fully prepared to lose regular season games at this point. I don't think there's any way we start on time. I don't think there's any way that a deal comes together uh, over the weekend. It'll already be Friday morning by the time our people listen to this. I don't think there's any way they get a deal done over the weekend and during the day Monday. I'm prepared to lose at least two weeks of the regular season at this point. I think it's going to be a lot more than that. Oh, they yeah. are not close at all. And the funny thing is, okay, maybe something big changes tomorrow. And I hope that most of the people who listen to this Saturday or Sunday are going, wow, these guys are idiots. Look, they worked it out. We're ready to go. Spring training starting on Monday. That's not going to happen, though. They are very, very far apart on things. And I think the owners have no problem losing games in April. I've explained why a couple of times on the show. They got a ton of money coming at the end of the year with expanded playoffs. The players get full salaries in April. Ballparks aren't full in April. I don't think Bob Nutting or Dick Monfort really cares all that much if there's baseball in April, if it means the players get beaten down. Because what I'm seeing in this, what's currently being proposed by the players isn't all that different from what we currently have, other than there's a little bit more money, right? A little bit more money towards first-year players, a little bit more money for those pre-arbitration players as well. It's not substantial overhauling of the system here. And the owners aren't budging on anything. So I don't think this is getting worked out in the next four days. I don't think this is getting worked out in the next month at the pace things are going right now. Not not one bit. We, we get reports from the meetings every day. Uh, what the players are showing, what kind of vehicles they're showing up to the meetings in, by the way, and I know that's a point of contention we'll get to later. Nobody seems to have any kind of optimism. The, the players are willing to come down on their demands a little bit. It doesn't seem like the owners are willing to come up on their demands more than a percentage point at a time. And that's just not the formula to getting a deal done. We hear that both sides continue to walk away underwhelmed with the other side, as much as they do say it helps to be negotiating in the same room like this. It's just not good. Nobody, nobody covering this, nobody at these meetings, nobody with a stake in this seems to have any kind of optimism that we're starting on time. And I think that's all pervasive at this point. I would say that the players have said that they won't agree to expanded playoffs for if, unless there's a 162 game season. So the owner's not, I mean, if there's not 162 game season, then they're, they're not getting expanded playoffs at the end. Um, Maybe. 
Well, I mean, I, I would think that's something they would hold to. I mean, it seems kind of, I don't think they're just going to give it up just for, um, so I, 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 I don't, I, I think that, you know, I, like I said, to me, I, I wouldn't put so much stock in this February 28th deadline. I mean, that's an owner imposed deadline that like, like I said, I didn't even, I didn't put stock in it to begin with. Uh, I don't think it's, it's, it's just a, you know, a way to try to exert pressure. Um, and the whole, this whole thing is just nonsense to me because it's an argument over really nothing because either way, there's not going to be a major change in the way baseball is. The most important thing to me is the competitive balance tax. And that's obviously hasn't even been touched yet. So uh, to me, it's like not because the owners could just call it a win no matter what open and lift the lockout and just accept the deal, but they just want to, you know, break the union for, for the most part, it's just about control and winning to them. So like, it's really not really an argument about anything that's like on the, on board of, of the, you know, any of the offers. Well, I disagree with you about February 28th though, whether or not it's an arbitrary date, the owner set players need multiple weeks to get ready for opening day. Sure. If they're not throwing the first week of March in spring training, you can't play games March 31st. But so we're not getting baseball at the end of the month if they're not in Mesa playing ball next week. Sure, but February 28th is not the last date for that to be possible. And March 31st does not necessarily have to be opening day for to get a 162-game season in, in, in baseball. Um, I mean, yeah, something would have to come together, you know, over time. But I just – it's I, I, I think I, – I, I think – we did not get so caught up in whatever the owner imposed lockout is because, or lock the date is because that's just kind of feeding into the owner's own game, to be honest. Um, so I just think that it's, it's, you know, February 20th is a date and yes, it would be best to get it done by that time. And, and I, I'm not too optimistic about things getting done then, but we, we'll see Like, uh, like I said, the, it's all about what the competitive balance tax to me is because they haven't even touched that. And that's by far the thing that they're furthest apart on. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, each side right now is just making incremental, you know, the players haven't moved that much and, and the owners haven't moved a ton. I mean, the players are offering, I've been mean, talking about from their original offers uh, this week, but the players aren't really offering like, a, like they're offering it, as you said, basically, you know, playing baseball as usual. They're not really coming out and trying to, you know, take a lot that's different. They're, it's going to be a loss for them, in my opinion, no matter what. So they're just trying to like contain it. So I, I don't know. We'll see. I, I think the whole thing's just nonsensical. It, it's absolute BS that we're not going to get baseball and that there's a lockout. The owner should just, you know, lift the lockout and accept the win. And they can still negotiate even without the lockout. Yeah. But to me, it's all about the competitive balance tax. Well, it's insulting the messaging we're getting from owners. It's insulting that this thing started at the beginning of February. It took a month and a half for owners to make their initial pitch, which obviously wasn't going to be bought by the players. You're going to negotiate back and forth. And now here we are middle towards the end of February at this point, and they're just finally meeting daily. And still the owners are pushing third-party arbiters and getting federal help to come in here and mediate the process. A lot of delay tactics, delay tactics rather. It feels like are coming from the owners. And then to throw another threat at the players, the owners go, oh, and by the way, if we're not starting March 31st, we're not making up those games, which is obviously an attack on the players because that's salary that they're not going to get. If you play 150 games instead of 162, you're missing two weeks worth of salary, two weeks worth of income. So it's getting dirty. And that has me worried with uh, what should be spring training games going on right now, not even a possibility. 
it, it keep coming back to the owner. It doesn't seem like the owners want baseball anytime soon. It seems like they're doing everything possible to keep the players from to, to avoid giving the players an offer that they can reasonably accept. They're, as you said, they're threatening that if we don't start on time, when we don't start on time, it, the games aren't going to be made up. The steps to play a 162 game season will not be taken. It seems every bit like the owners are content to run out the clock on this. And then when games are missed, the owners are going to look around and go, gosh, who made us miss all of these games? Couldn't have been us. It, the owners, it's, it's hard to, say it's hard to say everything you can as to how much the owners are at fault here they're the ones who instituted the lockout and they're the ones who are lowballing these offers and running out the clock and i hope at some point we're able to get that message across or not we that people are able to accept that message this is not a player imposed imposed work stoppage literally yeah. and figuratively this is entirely on the owners and i hope that blame is placed on them in perpetuity until this is resolved i think it's pretty clear that the owners just want to break the union. I mean, they, they yeah. don't, they want a total win. They don't care. They won't take, you know, okay, we want a little bit, or there's a little bit, but they want a total win. They don't, they're not willing to negotiate on certain topics. They're not willing to, um, you know, accept certain things. Like I, I, to be honest, like the players, you know, they are the competitive balance tax. It's already been around, you know, for 20 years. And it was a mistake of the players 20 years ago to even accept it probably. But the players are like, they don't have to offer that necessarily in their offers. They're making those offers. And now the players, the offer that their players are putting out a table is probably a worse offer than 1994. Like the players are in a much worse position than they were in the nineties because of the decisions that they made over the past 20 years in collective bargaining. And so it's just crazy to me that this huge fight is over these, what in the essence is a small amount of the huge yeah. fight. Like, most player, like, I think I saw a stat the other day that there are 18 teams that are going to have their payrolls entirely covered in this upcoming season by their television deals. So they're already like player salaries are not what are not like a huge, huge, like the owners are making tons of money coming from all various. Yeah. It's already covered for the most part. So it's just crazy to me that they're arguing like around, you know, 3% of the total $10 billion revenue. And the players are like, okay, we want a little bit more. We just want a little bit more because we've been screwed for 20 years. And I think the owners don't realize. I think they just think that because they've gotten their way for so long and a lot of these people, you know, have gotten their way probably throughout their entire lives. And there's not as much, uh, as Jeff Passon said the other day, institutional knowledge because there has been a lot of uh, turnover amongst the owners. There's not like people, there's very few owners that are left from 1994 that I don't think they realize how much the union has banded together. Cause like, I think right now is the biggest moment that of the union of the players being like really steadfast in their demands and not backing down at any point, probably since 1994. We've, we've said that more than a few times as we've navigated our way through this lockout, the players have a means of messaging directly that they did not have in previous work stoppages. And the players have been unanimous on being united to a man, they will say how, how solid the ranks of the union are in not backing down to the owners. And I think you, I think you were right. I don't think the owners realize just how galvanized the players are in not backing down on what little the owners are offering. And I think that's a recipe for, again, this lockout continuing and both sides digging in their heels. 
And it's, it's just not good. All the ingredients for an extended lockout with a lot of missed regular season games are all there and they're all mixing together to form that. Question for you all. And we're talking just baseball because if we expanded into other things in the world right now, there's an obvious answer to this question, but in the baseball world, who in your opinion is the asshole of the week with regards to everything that's going on? I got one, but I'm curious where you guys are sitting with this. The asshole of the week. I, yes. I, you're just Ron Blum or whoever wrote that AP article. No, no, I'm very annoyed with the AP oh. and I, I will share that in a minute. There is a picture... reporter and I'm reluctant to use the word reporter, a media figure, which is what most of these. Oh, I think I know where you're right going now are, but I want you guys to go first here before I get into that rant. Uh, my asshole of the week would probably be, uh, I, I, I think it's, it's, I, I just think it's, you know, I'm going to say Dick Monfort, your guy, <laughs> not anything particularly special about what anything Dick Monfort, Dick Monfort did, did this week. It's just that he's the chairman of the owner's executive committee. So he's in the room all the time. And I think that it, it's just absolutely, this whole thing is just such nonsense and it's such a dumb fight, in my opinion, that the owners can't seem to accept it. Like they have to have everything. They can't just give one little morsel up. It's got we gotta have everything or we're not gonna have baseball. And so for that matter, I just I think Mom first representative of all the owners <laughs> is being the asshole of the week. I'm oh, always down for some Dick Monfort bashing. What about you, yeah, Randall? Always, always down to call Dick the asshole of the week. Uh, I'm going to stick with Rob Manfred on this one. You know, we talk about how he works for the owners and he does, but he's, he's the one, he's their public messenger in a lot of regards that he works for them. He's the one who takes the, the bullshit that they are perfectly content to spout. And he's the one who tries to spin that as being good for the game in, you know, he's the one who gets in front of the microphone and says, it's important for the game that we see this through. So uh, he's a many time winner of this award, the asshole of the week award. He's got a whole mantle's worth of them. And I'm going to put one more of those asshole of the week awards on his mantle and award it to, to Rob Manfred. Fair enough. Can I guess uh, who you are? You should just go. One of the most least likable. What am I saying here? One of the least, most likable, least likable. Yeah. Nice and efficient there, Randall uh, commissioners of any of the sports and most commissioners aren't liked, but Rob Manfred has a special place there. Jeremy, where do you think I'm going with this? I are you going with a former general manager? Of former general manager, the Cincinnati Reds and Washington Nationals. Yeah. Okay. Who, who do we got? We got Ralph. We got good old, good old Ralphie boy, Jim Bowden, who does work for the man, works for Major League Baseball Network. So the guy is just carrying buckets and buckets of bullshit. Which, speaking of that, Randall, you got me thinking. Jeff uh, Passan, ESPN, wrote an awesome article a couple weeks ago, got some knocks in there on Dick Monfort, and he basically said, if anybody would know a thing or two about BS, it'd be the Monforts. Their money was built in the cattle industry here in California, or Colorado, <laughs> so he knows a lot about that, and I'd like that Jeff Passon sort of worked that into a story. But Jim Bowden, Bowden, what is it? Idiot. Bowden? Bowden, whatever. I don't know. <laughs> it's been a job in a long time. He wants his name pronounced correctly. He can be a better reporter. Well, I mean, he, he's not even a reporter. It's, it's, it's PR. He's just running PR for Major League Baseball. Absolutely critical time to be talking about anything going on with the CBA, with what's going on with the lockout. And the guy is putting out tweets that are just straight cringe. And I'm looking at it going, I, I just can't even believe this is being put out there. Uh, this one, it's really disappointing. The Major League Baseball Players Association moved backwards 
for the third time in these negotiations, this time on minimums. Major League Baseball once again suggested third-party mediation. That was rejected. I'm not sure how MLB could respond positively to a backwards proposal like today's, but hopefully they will. That is just utter, utter nonsense. And of course, it's coming from the league. And if you don't say nice things about the league, you lose your job. Ask Ken Rosenthal about that. But it's total cringe to see people that are so wrong about what's happening to our sport right now that will gladly spew this nonsense on behalf of the owners. It's and that's exactly what he's doing. They are. It's like they're writing out his tweets for him, handing him the piece of paper, and he's content to just type that into his phone. There was one report out of the negotiations today saying that the owners are frustrated with the players because the owners feel like they've tried everything. You haven't tried shit, you assholes. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. And as you said, there are guys like Ralphie there who are content to just take that completely uncritically and push that as some sort of narrative. And Ronan, I know that the AP put out uh, a tweet, a report earlier this week that caught your eye in the worst possible way as well. And we've talked about this, uh, combating the media narrative. What did what did this latest outlet do that caught your eye? Can I just get one thing in while we're on the, the subject of Jim Bowden before we move on? I just also, for anybody who's uh, being a former general manager, you know, who wants to give Jim Bowden any weight, let's not forget that one, he basically, when he was working for ESPN and SiriusXM Radio, he got caught like stealing fake Twitter scoops and like reporting them out like basically as his own. And then when they were fake, found out they were fake, he deleted like his entire Twitter and disappeared and then came back. And if I remember correctly, he basically lost his job from the Washington Nationals for like skimming money from the uh, international uh you know, pool fund. And he had, there was like a, a that whole FBI raid uh, or investigation on this. So like, please don't give any respect to Jim Bowden. And now Randall, yes. you can ask uh, Ro- it's, Ronan it's an, a question. It's an impressive resume to have been shamed out of the, the front office of an MLB organization and then found posting fake scoops in your second job as a reporter. That's a really impressive resume. You're bad at two different jobs and you're physically and publicly bad at two different jobs. So again, thank you. Thank you for that contribution to the game, Ralph. So Ronan, what did the AP do this week that caught your eye in the worst way? Well, I, I, look, this is how I think about things relating to journalism and media. And I know we live in a time of clickbaits and all that stuff. I feel like I've got a pretty decent grasp of what's going on with baseball. So when I see headlines or narratives put together that are clearly wrong or misleading, and I'll get to why this is here in just a second, it really pisses me off. But what it also does that the AP should realize, what do I think when I see headlines about things I know less about, whether it's finance related or political related or war or politics, whatever the case may be, I know you're lying to me about things pertaining to baseball, at least you're being intentionally misleading in the way you frame things, that completely dissolves any trust in the rest of your reporting. So I just wish newspapers and media entities thought about that with a lot of the stuff that they spew out in the world. So what pissed me off this week was a string of tweets that came out yesterday, so Wednesday. This is from the official AP Sports Twitter account. Here's the first tweet, and we'll see how it ties in with the other ones. Based on last year's base salaries of $3.8 billion, Major League Baseball players would combine to lose $20.5 million for each day wiped off the regular season schedule should the lockout continue. And of course, 
They picked the two highest, two of the highest paced players in the game and mentioned that Max Scherzer, a Hall of Fame pitcher, one of the greatest pitchers of our time, would lose $230,000 a day. And then Garrett Cole, great player, Cubs and rocked him around in the playoffs, $193,000 each day that this lockout goes on. That's money not in their pockets. They again go on to say the next tweet here is the Mets' Max Scherzer, who arrives in a Porsche. You got to highlight that joins fellow pitcher Garrett Cole and other players as union and MLB meet for the third straight day. The third tweet, and then I'll tie back into the Porsche comment because that one bothers me. With the deadline to salvage opening day looming, Major League Baseball's only new offer to players was to boost the minimum salary by an additional $10,000 a year. Major League Baseball upped its proposed minimum this year to $640,000. Players have asked for $775,000. So the purpose of this string of tweets was ultimately to highlight the fact that they're disagreeing on rookie pay. And the AP here grabs two of the highest players in the game and puts their numbers out to start this framing of tweets. Then you've got the line in here about the Porsche. Max Scherzer is an elite performer in a highly valuable job for an industry that generates $11 billion a year. Is anybody offended by the fact that he drives a Porsche? Not me. What did the owners get to these meetings in? There is literally, thanks to Robert Stock, the former Cub, there's literally a helicopter that one of the owners has flown into the facility that they're meeting at and is sitting in between two of the practice fields. Steve Cohen, the owner of the Mets, the team that Scherzer plays for, is worth about $15 billion. And we have a problem with Max Scherzer driving around in a Porsche. Technically, nothing that they put in these tweets is inaccurate. So you can't say, well, it's fake news but it's clearly misleading. It's clearly piss poor framing and it's clearly cherry picking certain things of data to make the players look bad. And that is just complete horseshit to me. And this stuff is why major league baseball players have an uphill battle, not just at the negotiation table, but the battle for public perception. AP sports is supposed to be unbiased. That is complete nonsense. What they're tweeting and the way that they're framing this and Max Scherzer, I think he should be pissed off. If I were Max Scherzer, I'd probably drive a Porsche too. If I were Max Scherzer, I'd drive like a, a hydrogen-powered hovercraft everywhere I go. You got that much money, find find something even more exciting than a Porsche. Ronan, you're 100% on the money here. We've been talking about it all winter. We've called it out as we've seen it. NBC Sports has framed the issue in typically poor fashion. Other outlets have as well. We've called it out via our Twitter account, which, by the way, at BTYL Podcast, find us there. Every time we've seen it, we've called it out. There are media outlets that are content to push this terribly framed narrative from the perspective of the owners. And you hit it on the head that the Porsche thing is ridiculous. What possible difference does it make what the guy drives? He is, again, one of the highest paid pitchers in the game, and rightfully so. If he showed up at a Honda Civic, is is that going to make this any better? It's ridiculous framing. It's not germane to the discussion at all. The AP as one of these sources of record needs to do better. Even if, you know, AP has got a lot of stringers, a lot of freelancers who are able to publish under their banner, but it's still their name on it. And they need to do a better job of controlling these headlines, controlling this content because they are a media outlet and they are a media outlet of note. They need to do better in framing this narrative. And we've said that about more than one outlet. AP is now on the list as well. Yeah, it wasn't even just, you know, just the tweets. The article itself was kind of framed. Mm-hmm. It, had, it had some mentions and framed in a way. Um, it, it, as you mentioned, you, you know, it's ridiculous to portray Max Scherzer, who, by the way, is not even 
really even arguing on his own behalf, as you as yes. you, they even point out. Yeah, he's arguing on the behalf of of the, this whole thing has been about getting more money to the you know pre arb guys the uh, or the super two getting more guys into arbitration. It's all been about getting the younger guys more money. Yeah. So for them to go after Max Scherzer, who's who's basically been trying to do that, is kind of funny. And and as you mentioned, like these owners, you know, Steve Cohn is worth more than MLB like makes generates in revenue in a year, which is a huge number. Um, you know, actually, fun fact: my dad's uh, flight instructor is the corporate pilot for Guggenheim, which is uh, the owner of the Dodgers, Mark Walter. Interesting. Uh, uh, um, you know, and so he's actually flown players out on on the private jet. He's the pilot, and yeah, they they're flying all you know, private jets everywhere, doing everything. So like it, for the owners, and he's flown, you know, used for the owners. Um, but it's ridiculous that you know to phrase it as look at how rich these players are. Look how rich Max Scherzer is. Um, you know, who as you mentioned, like part of the problem to me is I, for me, I'm I'm like a capitalist. I'm like a you know laissez-faire type dude for but you know with regulation but like i want less rules i want player teams to be able to spend as much money as they want yeah. i want you know the i see max scherzer making money because there's demand for max scherzer to make money like if you have a problem with how much ma- money max scherzer makes then stop going to baseball games stop watching baseball games yeah. because people like watching baseball people like it. it's something they like to do that's why these guys are making money that's why ticket prices go up that's why beer goes up not to pay max scherzer salary but because people want to go to games and when they go to games they buy beer that's what they do it's fun yeah. so like if you have a problem with all that then you could not do it but that's so like i don't have a problem with the money any of these guys make because there's the demand for it and yeah. the owners you know they have the right to make whatever money they want as well it's just don't do it in my opinion by trying to can, can uh, control wages and constrain wages. Let let everybody spend who wants to spend. Yeah, there's there's absolutely no argument against the players making as much money as they possibly can. There's no good argument for the players shouldn't be making this much money. There's no good argument for salaries are out of control. And again, you don't hear a lot of people espousing that these days. It's generally people of a certain age demographic who no one really wants to listen to anyway. Much better that that money goes to the players and the owners. We can quibble over whether a particular player is skilled enough, you know, maybe to have a certain contract. We can, we can argue that from a baseball standpoint, from an economic and financial standpoint, there's absolutely no argument that the players should not be able to make as much money as they possibly can. And one of the things we said when this lockout was instituted right at the very beginning, one of the things that you can do is call out that narrative when you see it. And we've had to do that continuously because there are some outlets who are content to push that narrative. And that's one of the very things we said on these I don't know if we have airwaves because we're not a radio broadcast, but it's one of the very things we said on these these audio wave forms being injected into your ears. Call out that narrative when you see it, because you can't simply let the news outlet say things like Max Scherzer shows up in a Porsche as if that's the slightest bit germane or relevant to the discussion. I I, I would uh, say, go ahead. Sorry, I would say though there are a lot of people who. Oh no, this is. I mean, we could talk all about how the players have a, a you know access to certain, you know, devices, Twitter accounts and stuff like that to get their message out that they didn't have in the past. There's a lot of people that either take, sees the players as greedy or, or uh, both sides, the issue kind of, and there's a, a, and it's not a, it's probably not even a mind. It might not even be a minority of people might even be a majority of people. Like that's a huge thing to go up against. 
And, you know, Randall, Randall being ages a little bit, talking about people of a certain age. I mean, uh, you know, I remember a couple of years ago, Bernie Sanders was out there on the road bashing the players for how much money they're making, basically saying it's ridiculous how much money uh, Major League Baseball players make. And I'm like, but that's what their demand is for. Um, so I, I see a lot. You see a lot of it that, that sees the players as whiny crybabies um, that because they're so rich, you know, playing a game. But like, no. Put it in your own industry. Uh, nobody wants to be have their bosses constrain their way. You want to have the opportunity to make as much money as you possibly can, and obviously mm-hmm. the owners do too. But you want to, ha- but like, you don't want to constrain from above. You want I, so to me, it's like open it up a little bit. Absolutely. And here's the thing: if Major League Baseball is making eleven billion dollars a year, whoever you are as a baseball fan, whatever team you've got loyalty to, would you rather? Your star first baseman, the guy that you watch hit these towering home runs, makes amazing defensive plays. Would you rather he have a couple more dollars in his pocket for the amazing achievements and thrills? Or that owner who's charging you $15 or, excuse me, $24 for a double Jack and Coke at Coors Field? Do you want a couple more dollars in his pocket? Meanwhile, Nolan Arenado and $50 million is getting traded to St. Louis. Like, why would the typical fan go that way? I mean, I think... A lot of fans like to go, well, if I played, I wouldn't need $5 million. I would do it for $100,000. But the fact of the matter is, if you were elite at your job, and we're talking anybody on a 40-man roster is an elite Major League Baseball player in the world. No question about it. Even the crappy guys, Randall, like Eric Sogard and uh, players like that, right? They're still the top of their craft in terms of the grand scheme of things. Why shouldn't they be getting a higher percentage of money? And what we're looking at with regards to first-year salaries, the $150,000, $200,000 raise, this is not a back-breaking amount of money that the players are asking for from ownership. And if they get expanded playoffs, they've got tons of money coming back to more than cover the cost of giving first- and second-year players $150,000, $200,000 more a year. It's, it is insulting to the fans that the owners are willing to lock us out of games, not just the players, but us as fans, over what is pennies to them. Don't forget the uh, uh, sponsorships on the jersey. <laughs> yeah. Bring in a That's lot of money. But I, I think, yeah, I was just going to say, I, I think that there's a couple of reasons. One, why people uh, kind of kind of see it that way is one, uh, most people identify with the teams because they're fans of the team. They're not, mm-hmm. the players travel around. And a lot of people view the players as, you know, like if it's the Cubs versus Chris Bryant, let's say, and Chris Bryant leaves as a free agent. Well, Chris Bryant was just greedy because I'm a Cub fan, you know? So that's like a lot of way people view things. And two is, you know, a lot of people, I think they identify, you know, they want to one day be the, those people, like the, the owners kind of, you know, everybody wants to be like successful. Right. So they think they can be that at some point, right. I mean, like super rich in a place like America. So I don't know. And uh, just one more point you we're talking about, I think it's like $4 million that the players are asking for per, per each team to raise the minimum wages, you know, which is ridiculous. And that's not even like really, cons- it hasn't been consistent with uh, inflation. Like if you look at five, six, the last CBA, the number didn't increase with inflation. Like the players, those players have lost money over time. You know, I, I was told there would be no math, but we keep saying <laughs> it. There, there is no math that supports the players not getting 
the proper share of money. We just spent five minutes talking about how these owners make millions of dollars a year. There's absolutely no reason that the rookies can't make an extra $150,000, $200,000 on their base salaries. There's no math. There is no math that doesn't support the players from any reasonable point of view. There is absolutely no reason to say the owners shouldn't have to spend these extra few million a year on player salaries and things like that. There's absolutely no reason, no objective reason, no logical reason, no mathematical reason to take that side in the argument. And it's ridiculous that that's what's being pushed upon us. We, we got to get a pro owner guest on the show just so that there's a little bit of back and forth. We'll see if we can track somebody down. Steve Although, Cohen would absolutely do it. If you <laughs> uh, tell uh, Jim Steve Bowen is going to come on here and uh, defend his I, I'd love to have Steve Cohen on the podcast. If you Steve, want, Steve Cohen would be interesting. Yeah. And, yeah, no, Steve Cohen would tell him, hey, we'll, we'll give you a microphone. You zoom in with us. We'll, we'll let you tell your side of the story. The way he does not really have much of an owner's filter on Twitter, I feel, I feel like he would be more than happy to come on here and try and plead his case. So Steve Cohen, if you're out there in between lighting hundred dollar bills on fire to light your cigars or whatever it is rich people do to entertain themselves we we will give you airtime we will let you say your piece uh, call our producer that's me um and and we'll, we'll we'll bring you on i'm just getting bummed guys because i've said this on the show before april 14 cubs in denver for four games i do not think this is happening i do not think i'm getting cubs baseball in denver this year it seems less and less likely that's two times out of the last three years, I haven't had the opportunity to see Cubs play here in the Mile High City, and that really stinks because I love it. I it's I, the Rockies fans hate us when we're at Coors Field. We are loud. We outnumber them. Cubs fans can be obnoxious. I love it. It's great to not have that through the last three years. Stinks, and I just wish again that owners would realize beyond just generating as much revenue as possible. And I'm with you, Jeremy. I'm pro capitalist. I do not think major league owners need to operate these teams as, you know, charity functions or anything like that. Like make money, but please try and win. Please try and compete. You have a special opportunity here. My company has a lot of employers in Colorado. We can have a great business here. We do not get a parade. You win a championship, you get a parade in your city. There's some extra responsibility when you own a team. And I wish that these owners would not like this entire thing on fire. Remember Jesse Rogers said July 4, opening day? Yikes, what if that happens? I just wish these owners would give us some baseball because all I want March 31st is to sit here, put on a Cubs game, sit back and say, hey, what, we got Marcus Stroman, we got Frank Schwindel, let's go out and win a division title. That's all I want as a baseball fan and a sports fan one month from now. And I know we, we've almost gotten to the point where we, we can't say a whole lot more without doubling back on ourselves. Sure. But one thing that we have said from the very beginning is that the owners are coming off of a 60 game season where they had absolutely no gate revenue. They're coming off of a full season where they had less gate revenue. We, we said that there would be incentive on the part of the owners to work with the players and get something done so that you're not facing a third straight compromised season as far as your gate revenue, which is where you make most of your money. And it, that doesn't seem to be factoring into their calculus. They simply do not seem to care. And my hope is that somebody in those ranks wakes up at some point. And to touch on something that we talked about last week, where you only need 
23 of the 30 owners in order to ratify something. It sounds like there's enough dissension in the ranks. They don't even necessarily have 23 on certain issues. So again, there's, there's no optimism here. It seems like everything is a mess. You can't get the owners to agree on enough or agree on enough productively. It just doesn't seem like we are in for any kind of good re resolution anytime in the near future. I, I would love to be a fly on the wall of any type of ownership correspondence. I would love to know like where all these different owners are on various topics, because I imagine Sometimes I, I mean, not often, but sometimes I do feel sorry for Rob Manfred having, having to herd all these billionaires around who probably think that, you know, they, anything they will each individually, like they've, you know, they deserve everything in the world because they're special. Um, as opposed to Bud Selig, who was one of them. So he probably could talk to them a little bit. Uh, it's just, it's just. You know, it, it's just the whole thing, as I said, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's asinine that we're even at this point because it's just, I, I I have to imagine there has to be a lot of I, I don't think the owners are as um, united as the players are. I, th I think there is dissension probably on the ownership. I remember in 94, Peter Angelos, being a, a labor lawyer, uh, was totally against the way that the owners negotiated. And it's unfortunate that we don't have Peter Angelos around anymore. I mean, he's alive, but he's like 95 years old and still the owner of the Baltimore Orioles uh, to be out there. So I, I, I just... I would love to know how everything's going down. Like, why is, I mean, I know he's the executive chairman of the committee, but the fact that Dick Bomfort is the representative of all the owners does not bode well for me. No, not at all. Well, one other final point on this. I do think it's a little bit ironic that the owners who like to pretend that they don't make boatloads of money every single year they own a baseball team are perfectly willing to give up a month or two months or three months worth of gates or at the first start of the season. Like, if money was that tight, as they like to purport it being, wouldn't they be pushing for more games starting in April? Well, I don't think money is as tight as they're saying, and I'll let it go here until next week when I'll start bitching that the Cubs aren't coming to Denver in the middle of April again. Let's try and cheer things up for just a minute here, and then we'll talk 57 and bring this thing home. You know what makes me happy, even though it ended bad? The 2003 Chicago Cubs. So Randall, play along with me here for a minute. I want you to pick a number between 1 and 162. Uh, I am going to pick number 52. All right, let's see what we got here. The 52nd game, you picked a good one. The 52nd game of the 2003 season occurred on a Wednesday, May 28th, 2003, Wrigley Field, 120 start, of course. Of course. The Chicago Cubs defeat the Pittsburgh Pirates 5-4 to four in front of 32,406 folks in a game that took two hours and 18 minutes. Wow. Uh, let's take a look here. I got a uh, trivia in the moment. All see right. how well you guys do with this. The Pittsburgh Pirates that day, not a particularly great squad for Pittsburgh. They were 22 and 30 in this loss against the Cubs five to four. I count one, two, three, four, four total players in the Pittsburgh lineup were part of their pitching staff that day that were also Chicago Cubs in their career. Can you think of the four on that 2003 day where the uh, Pirates played at Wrigley Field? Well, two are probably pretty obvious. I imagine Lofton and Ramirez were in that lineup. You're one but for two. I'm oh, one I thought you said two. on their pitching staff. Well, he said in lineup and pitching staff. So oh, I, I imagine they the were in the lineup that day and then got into okay. the game 
as a pitcher. Yeah. So combined. No, no Lofton, but you got Aramis. Okay, got Aramis. Randall Simon, was he in the lineup for them that day? Mm-hmm. Randall Simon was, and he went one for four in the ball game. So he had one base hit. Two All more. Right. Two more. Jeremy, you have any you have any guesses? You have any thoughts on this? While I while I'll give I you one hint too, do? just to narrow it down. One pitcher, one position player. All right. Yeah, I figured there'd be a pitcher in there. So I, I a position player and a pitcher on the 2003 Pirates. Yeah. So yeah, obviously Lofton, Randall Simon. Ah, oh, Ramos not in the lineup. Interesting. No, Ramos in the lineup. No, yeah, Lofton. no Lofton. No Lofton. Sorry, misheard. Misheard. I'll two, give you another hint. This is going to mm-hmm. give you guys one of them. Pitcher, catcher. Okay, so a a, a a Pirates catcher, Jason Kendall. Oh, was yeah, Jason Kendall for them that day, and he had a good day for the Buckos, two for four. I okay, I, I have the pitcher is tough. I do not remember him as a Pirate. Oh, and I have fond memories of him as a Cub. I was gonna say something like John Grabo. <laughs> no, but uh, he was on the two thousand and one Chicago Cubs, and then the two thousand three Pittsburgh Pirates. Tom Gordon? Controversial figure. He Julian was a starting pitcher for the Cubs, relief pitcher for Pittsburgh. What'd you say? Julian Tavares? Julian Tavares, right there. Uh, starting pitcher for the Cubs that day, Mark Pryor. Seven and two-thirds, eight strikeouts, zero walks, Randall. Uh, four earned runs, though. Remlinger and then Joe Borowski picking up his 10th save for the Cubs. Uh, let's see, any umpires of note? Eh, not so much. Tim Timmons, popular name, Eric Coomer, uh, Cooper another popular name, wanted to see the Cubs lineup that day. Tom Goodwin, Mark Grudzelanek, Corey Patterson, first three hitters for the Cubs that day, 0 for 11. Not a good start. After that, though, the lineup picked up. He stopped Choi, gets the start at first base. Troy O'Leary, the uh, amazing shortstop until October. Alex Gonzalez had a hit, drove in two. Mark Bellhorn, the starting third baseman, and Damian Miller, the backstop for the Cubs that day. So, Good pick there, Randall. The Cubs, 29-23. and 23. They knock out a game in under two hours and 20 minutes, beating the Pittsburgh Pirates that day. Uh, Cubs win. Can't complain about that. Can I say about Jason Kendall, there was a yep. 2007 Cubs-Astros game on marquee recently because they have nothing else to do right now. And Jason Kendall was behind the plate for the Cubs that day, and he was getting run upon every inning it was it was unfortunate to see jason kendall never a great throwing catcher he certainly didn't have any throwing arm left by the time he was briefly a cub he was just getting run all over every inning and the uh, the television booth for this game that being of course casper and uh brenly they it sounded like they were talking about uh, a sick horse who you were going to have to take out back and and you know break out the bolt gun. They were just talking about how Jason Kendall simply cannot control the run game anymore, how the Astros were taking second base at every opportunity. It was kind of difficult to watch, even though it's a game that's a good 14 years old, 15 years old at this point. It was, it was difficult to watch just because every, every base runner, I kept saying, you got to do a better job of holding him than that. So yeah. it, it's, it's good to know I can still react to baseball, even if it is a, a, a 15 year old victorious game. Sure. Um, yeah. So I'd, thanks. I'd, you know, Marquis, we, we have my complaints, but it's kind of nice occasionally to be able to turn on a game from an era that I partook in and have that as background noise for a little while. And to bring it back full circle, Jason Kendall is still the highest paid player, largest contract ever <laughs> given out by the Pittsburgh Pirates. I think it was six year, $55 million in the early 2000s. So utterly ridiculous. Know, and also one of the most grotesque 
baseball injuries that I'll never be able to get out of my mind. I, repl- yeah. I replace all the team in my head. So don't YouTube that. It's grotesque. And I, I've been thinking about it for 20 years. Man. Well, whatever, you know, whatever you Pittsburgh. do, don't YouTube grotesque Jason Kendall injury. Do not no, punch right on the first base, stepping on the base in a bad way. That's not how you do it. That That's not good. There have been some bad injuries over the years. Certainly the Bill Miller injury in St. Louis is just sort of stuck tarp, in my head. The tarp monster ate him. I mean, the little space between the uh, turf there or the, the dirt on the warning track and then the uh, padding. And boy, the knee went right into it. I'll never not see that. And lots of great heroic comebacks from injuries. We've seen Kyle Schwarber probably being the peak of that for the Cubs. But Bill Miller coming back that year and playing for the Cubs was pretty impressive. He would go on and have many good years in Major League Baseball. But there's one guy in Pittsburgh that I also wanted to mention quickly. Brian Giles, the starting left fielder. Great ball player. When I think of the Pirates from the early 2000s, Brian Giles is right up there. And that's a guy that, even though he was on a team I didn't like, always was a fan of Brian Giles. Brian Giles, from he was traded from uh, Cleveland in the late 90s. It's crazy how many young, talented yeah. hitters Cleveland had in the 90s that they had, to, they had to make room by trading guys like Brian Giles, you know, trading Richie Sexton, Russ Brannion. These were the guys that were like the second tier of all their hitters. And it's just crazy that they were able to do that. And uh, Brian Giles also, I remember there was like a Greg Maddox story because Brian Giles played for the Padres uh, when Greg Maddox was traded to the Padres. And or he traded to the Dodgers and he went to the Potters afterwards. But like Brian Giles, maybe not the all in the upstairs, maybe not the sharpest tool in the shed, but cracked Greg Maddox up all the time. And of course, Brian's brother Marcus, responsible for one of Mark Pryor's oh, shoulder yeah. injuries, yeah. the the collision at second base. So the the Giles family intertwined with Cubs history, uh, Brian as a member of the Pirates division opponent. And then Marcus came in and uh, threw the shoulder tackle on Mark Pryor on the base pass. Mark Pryor though, man, when that guy was on, just must watch baseball. I get sad when I see him in a Cubs uniform, uh, pitching his heart out in 2003 and maybe pitching his arm off. Really, it's cool that he's had sort of a full circle story in baseball, World Series champion now, opportunity to lead a really good pitching staff there in Los Angeles. Always loved Mark Pryor. Was at his big league debut. That was something that the uh, folks, Pops, made sure we were out at the ballpark for that one. Just kind of sad, though. You, you look at that player and you go, man, he could have been one of the best ever if his body had just held up and it just wasn't in the cards for him. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's strange to see him as a, a big lead pitching coach right now, especially when he has to come out at the mount, come out to the mound in games at Wrigley. That's a little surreal. You see yeah. the gray bearded Mark Pryor in Dodgers blue and a hoodie walking out to the mound to talk to his pitcher. And it's just that combination of Mark Pryor and Wrigley field. It just, it just hits you. It's, it's, it's different. I hope that we get to see a pitching prospect with that much hype at some point again in the near future. I'm hoping maybe, maybe Jensen Killian. can be that. Maybe Killian can be that. Um, <laughs> Maybe, right. We're, we're a lot of wishful thinking here, but it would be nice to be, we, we've been fortunate to see a lot of really high positional prospects in the last decade. We've seen Anthony Rizzo. We've seen Chris Bryant. We've seen Javier Baez. We've seen Jorge Soler. We've seen Kyle Schwarber. We, you know, even Nico Horner being a first round pick, there was a All decent time, little bit of second baseman. 
That's right. Yeah. <laughs> As many people are saying that, it, you know, it would be nice to have that much hype around a pitching prospect and Alzale's MLB debut. He came in in long, long relief and he didn't quite have that much hype. It would be nice to see a really, really top tier hype pitching prospect coming up and making that first major league start at Wrigley. I hope we get to see that at some point in the near future. And with some of the talent they have in the minor leagues, that yeah. might not be too far off. Myrtle Beach team to watch here they're gonna have an awesome starting lineup but i'm i'm up with you randall with regards to i just want to be excited like here it comes here it comes brendan davis is probably going to be the next big one for the cubs that major league debut is going to be must watch baseball his first at bat his first game at wrigley field and then the other milestones that come with it the first home run the first walk-off hit it's fun getting those cycles again and it brings you back a little bit to 2015 and 2014. i was here in denver for hobbies first career game and a game winning extra inning home run. I got that even though he's a tiger. Now that's a awesome memory that I've got with a world series champion for the Cubs. We were at KB's uh, home run there in Milwaukee, historic home run, historic As, home we, run. We it got Anson Russell's game. first home run too. We did. We did. I, we I saw did a fan get arrested. I know. I know. I was <laughs> at work that day. Yeah. You know what? A cub, a cub can grow up to be an ursine or it can grow up to be a tiger. So Javi, as far as I'm concerned, is still a Cub. Nobody's going to remember him as a Met. Nobody's going to remember him as a Detroit Tiger. Javi is a Cub for life. You, you can't separate Javi from the Cub. I, I, I will say this, though, and I'm not even to disagree with you. I do hope lots of people think of Javi as a Detroit Tiger. I hope he inspires an entire generation of baseball fans in Detroit, a great baseball city. So I want people to go, oh, Javi, remember those awesome years he had with Detroit? I really want him to do well, even though I'm not that upset that the Cubs didn't quite give him that deal and that they went in a different direction. I agree. I hope he tears it up in Detroit. But again, it's, it's all about me. Sure. Baseball is all about <laughs> me. The concerns of Tigers fans are not my concerns. And my concerns are remembering Javi as one of the most exciting Cubs of all time. For sure. Be careful what you wish for. I mean... Chris Chelios spent nine years as a Chicago Blackhawk after a, a decent amount of time as a Montreal Canadian. So he's in, you know, 40 years old when he gets traded to the Detroit Red Wings. Everybody thinks it's the end of his career. And he ends up spending 10 more years as a Detroit win Red Wing, winning a couple Stanley Cubs, being an all-star. And now probably more people think of him as a Detroit Red Wing than they do as a Chicago Blackhawk. So wow. I hope that same thing doesn't happen with Javi. Well, Eddie doesn't think that. So that's important. Sure. And um you I mean, know, more people I, probably I think, think of Des Robin as a bull than a, as a piston. Sure, sure. Um, I prefer him as a bull than Me a too. piston. Didn't like him so much uh, kind of before I was really able to enjoy it. But you look back on those clips and much more enjoyable, more towards the end of his career in Chicago. Uh, let's end with this, number 57. This is not one of the most popular numbers in Chicago Cubs history. And in fact, as we get from 57 up to 99 or double zero, it's going to get thinner and thinner as we work through some of these numbers. But where I go with number 57, Jeremy, I know you're right in line with me, Antonio Alfonseca. Of all the characters that we've seen play for the Chicago Cubs, Alf was up there. Uh, just a memorable Chicago Cub. I the anti-Coy Hill. The, the, the bump in the bump, August yeah, or September, well, that, that five-game series. Mm -hmm. uh, where he bumped the umpire. That's how I always think of Alta Antonio Alfonseca. I, actually, I remember when they trade for him, that was like a spring training deal. It was kind of weird. It was a big trade, like in spring training. And they ended up trading Dontrell Willis, who actually had a pretty remarkable year the next year in the majors. And unfortunately came back to haunt the Cubs in the NLCS of 2003. But still, I remember you don't see many big spring training deals like that. 
And, you know, the extra, when I was in uh, St. Thomas, we used to have a cab driver who had six fingers, like legit six fingers on each hand. They called them doubles. So uh, <laughs> that was, he went by that. And uh, so Antonio Fonseca, he was El Polpo. So yeah. the octopus in Spanish. So, uh, you know, hey, help them throw the baseball. Yeah. Yeah, Al Alfonseca, big man, big personality. I always remember Ron Santo interviewing him on the radio pregame show. And there was a point at which Ron Santo would actually sit down with a player or with the manager on the radio pregame show. And he'd try and ask them a question in that Ron Santo way of his. And there was one point at which um, Santo asks Alfonseca, are you having any troubles with your back still? And Alfonseca, he goes, no, no, no my elbow a little bit, but not my back. And, you know, you don't know if a wire got crossed in Santo's question or if Alfonseca was actually dealing with multiple in injuries, but that will be one of my enduring Alfonseca memories is him trying to navigate a, a Ron Santo line of questioning in his time as a Cub. 57, as you said, it's pretty thin. It hasn't had that many wearers. There are a lot of guys here who are their own little micro stories. You have Jerome <laughs> Williams, who was acquired for, of course, Latroy Hawkins, uh, shipped out to the Giants. Jerome Williams came back. Jerome Williams, uh, Jerome mm -hmm. Williams wore a puka From shell Hawaii. necklace as a tribute as a tribute to his mother. You have Rocky Cherry, great, great name, the ice cream man. You have sounds Sam like an ice cream flavor. It does. It absolutely sounds like an ice cream flavor. You have Sam Fold, who was kind of in my memory as a Cubs fan, one of the earliest hustle white dudes who went out there, wasn't maybe the greatest baseball player, but he ran really fast and he jumped really far. And of course he's a major league GM now. So, you know, good for him. Chad Godin, who came over as a, you know, a throw in piece in the rich Harden deal. He was a great swing man. You have Fernando Rodney who has a, a great, great long MLB career. And he, of course, La, La Flecha, he shoot that arrow every time he comes off the field. Um, yeah, so it's it's a number with some stories to it. And uh, of course, finally, the most recent one to wear it in 2021, you have the side armor, Scott F. Ross. And that's kind of funny because, of course, he is managed by David Ross. And that has to be a little bit awkward where you have a player whose last name is literally F the manager. Uh, so that has to be a little bit awkward. A couple. I mean, there's some I, I think some. Uh, fun. I mean, Augie, we can't forget Augie Ojeda. Yeah. Who could he possibly forget Augie Ojeda? Why would you want to forget guy. Augie Ojeda? Uh, Sam Fold, as you mentioned, uh, you know, but there's an, a couple. Actually, one thing I want to go back a little bit. One fun Antonio Alfonseca thing I, I do before he was straight to the Cubs and the year before, uh, he I remember him he in spring training. I think spring training. He got into it with uh, Dale Torberg's son, who was a professional wrestler, who was yeah. like the strength coach of the Marlins, Dale Torborg, the former manager of the Chicago White Sox, who chased him around like the, the facility and he was like hiding from him. I remember that being a weird story. Um, but Rich Garces got a 57. We all remember Rich Garces. Uh, Zach Putnam, a former number 57. I think he was like uh, Clayton Richard. Both those guys were left-handers from and Rich Hill from the University of Michigan. But I think Putnam and uh, Clayton Richard were teammates at the University of Michigan. And there's one name here that I don't recognize. I feel like there's always one name I don't recognize. And it, in my era, I have no idea who Jason Birkin is. So if anybody can enlighten me on Jason Birkin, I'd be appreciative. Well, apparently let's, let's it was 2012. Fire yeah, up the, the baseball reference machine live Theo. and on air. Jason Birkin, 2012 with the Cubs, 
uh, was his final season in Major League Baseball. He split time between the Orioles and the Cubs that year. And that it's starting to come back to me now a little bit. I see that he came from the Orioles. He was, uh, as you would imagine, uh, not a blockbuster trade acquisition. He was a waiver claim by the Cubs in September of 2012. And if there's any month and any year that says great baseball to you for the Cubs, it should be September of 2012. And, you know, there's not a whole lot else to say about Jason Birkin. He pitched uh, 18 and two thirds inning for the Cubs in his brief span as a Cub. He had a 482 ERA, not a whole lot else going on. But now that I see that he came from the Orioles, it's starting to come back to me a little bit late season waiver claim, just to give you another warm body on the field. And that's, that's all I have to say on Jason Birkin is that I'm starting to vaguely remember him. And what what higher compliment can you pay pay a ball, pay a ball player than to say that you vaguely remember him. Apparently he started four games, so he, he got a lot of time out there. I mean, 18 innings in 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 uh, September. I mean, he, he must have been pitching a lot, a decent amount if he's had four starts. Yeah, again, I think he was one of those warm bodies you claim in September when you've got the roster space. You're maybe short on healthy and or worthwhile starting pitchers, and you just need somebody to come in and throw some innings for you. And by golly, it seems like Jason Birkin was more than willing to come in and throw some innings for somebody. Well, Augie Ojeda, certainly a fan favorite. He wore a couple different numbers in his time in Chicago, but his first year there, 2000, he did wear 57. I was thinking about Augie. The Cubs Instagram or Twitter put out a clip the other day uh, for Black History Month highlighting Sarge and Sarge Jr., Gary Matthews and his son, the only black father-son duo to play for the Chicago Cubs, if I remember the tweet correctly. But they showed the clip of Gary Matthews Jr.'s catch Back in 2001, remember, it was a flare to shallow center. He ran in, slid for it. The ball popped out of his glove at the very last minute, about an inch before the ball would have hit the grass, put his bare hand up. He made the catch. Awesome play. But the shortstop for the Cubs on that play was Augie Ojeda. So you see him charging out there. And to your point earlier, Randall, about Javi, now that I've seen Javier Baez for the Cubs at short, any other Cub that I see playing shortstop except like old clips of Ernie, it's just cringy especially like Ryan Terrio trying to make a throw from deep in the hole and short across and he's bouncing it to Derek Lee at first base. <laughs> just seeing Augie running out there, Gary steals the show. It just made me think, man, we were so spoiled with the defense that we had in Javi. It's never going to be the same seeing another guy play short for the Cubs. I hope I'm wrong, but boy, it's going to be hard to top Javi. El Mago, it's going to be extremely yeah. hard to top uh, uh, Javi. Excuse me, I almost said Augie there. Uh, you know, but uh, Augie, I, I love. I remember when the, I remember going to a game in like the early two thousands, uh, maybe late nineties, and, and just the whole stadium chanting Augie when he came up to bat. He was wearing number one in the game, I believe, not sure. number fifty seven. Uh, but it was just a whole. It was like a whole ordeal uh, when Augie Ojeda was there, and it's just you know, uh, uh, it was a fun. It's always fun. I know he's not a real player. Ever, I mean, he was a real player. Don't get me wrong. But I'm saying I know he's not a uh, uh, like he's not a star player. He's a, he's a grindy type, you know, end of the bench type guy real has this very certain role, but it's always fun. If you do have a couple of the guy, types of those guys, it's not fun if you have a whole team of them, but if you have like one guy at the end of the bench, it's always kind of a fun guy to have around if you're, especially if you're winning. Very close to a world series champion played 12 games for the 2003 Chicago Cubs. So there was a possibility there could have made it happen, but Augie definitely an early two thousands, fan favorite at Wrigley and then the Terrios and the Fontenos and those guys kind of came through before the world champs came in 
in the last decade. Uh, but let's end on a high note here. I've been pretty sour about these Major League Baseball owners. Give me something to feel good about going into the weekend. Next time we do this podcast, we may officially be announcing postponed big league games. What can I go out on a good note with here, Randall? I think we can go out with the fact that minor league baseball, I think for the Cubs is going to be really fun to watch this year. You know, uh, one of the accounts out of the vines at out of the vines put out this great projected lineup for Myrtle beach real quick. Pete Crow Armstrong in center, James Triantos at second, Owen Casey, DHing, Felix Stevens, who I don't know who that is, but he's playing first base, Kevin Alcantara in right field, <laughs> Ed Howard at short, Reggie Preciado at third, Ethan Hearn catching, Ismail Mania in left field. That, that'd be a really fun lineup to watch. If you put that game on marquee, as they damn well should, because you you're not going to have anything else to show, I will watch that. So I think the minor leagues, uh, with the influx of uh, acquired talent and some of the more recent draft picks, I think their minor leagues are going to be really fun to follow this year. So let, let that be your light through this snowstorm we're having in Chicago right now. Let that guide you through the next week as the optimism continues to dim on Major League Baseball, Ronan. Felix Stevens uh, was from Cuba. Uh, he's one of the Cubs Cuban signings a couple of years ago. So he, he, he coming up with those guys, it'll be interesting to see if he can, uh, you know, make it, he hits the ball hard. So, but, you know, a, a corner uh, guy, uh, I, I, you know, optimism. I don't know. The only optimism I have, and I'm just talking about in terms of major league baseball in general with it uh, going on. It's just the fact that they're continually talking, you know, that they are going to keep talking to, to the deadline and you never know. So, I mean, there could be some sort of breakthrough at any point. I, I do think when it happens, it will happen fast. As I've said all the time, it's not going to be like, you just got to get to that point. And unfortunately, it's, to me, it's all about the CBT. It's all about the CBT and nobody wants to discuss the CBT. So until they discuss the CBT and really dig in on that, I don't know, but I'm just going to be optimistic and say that they're still talking. So as long as we're still talking, things can happen. And Jeremy, you are not wrong. When this deal comes together, it is going to be a, a firestorm. It is going to come together at 11 o'clock at night on a weeknight, and it is going to be a week, two weeks of just nonstop activity, free agent signings, trades, people getting to spring training. You are not wrong. When it does come together, it is going to come together fast, and it is going to go crazy from there. We just have to get to that point. Man, fingers crossed. I, I really want some good news next week. I really want to get some Cubs baseball here in Denver next month. And uh, I just want this season to happen. We've had interrupted seasons a couple years in a row here. Cubs were maybe lukewarm on whether or not this team's going to be very competitive this year. But get this lockout over with. We'll at least know what the roster is going to look like. We're going to understand what kind of a team we're going to have here. Cubs, though, lots of excitement in the minor leagues. I think that's fair. Sunday, boys. Randall, pray for me. I will be snowshoeing Sunday at 12,183 feet above sea level i'm going to be two miles above you randall looking down on you on the top of a mountain i'm excited for that so something to look forward to going into the weekend here ronan i wish you luck as you are two miles above me i will look up i'll, I'll do the sammy sky point for you um enjoy your snowshoeing uh you can you can dye your, your beard white you can be a snowshoe hair for the day and uh so yeah look forward to that and maybe by the time you come down from your mountain there will be a, a an 11th hour deal so as you are as you are traipsing through the snow with tennis rackets strapped to your feet specifically to distribute your weight so you don't fall into the snow, think that think think baseball thoughts. Think happy thoughts about baseball. Well, enjoy your weekend, boys. We'll be back for number 58 next week. That means we get to talk 
Giovanni Soto. Should be a good one. Looking forward to it. Fingers crossed the deal gets worked out. We'll see you next week.